battling the relentlessly negative doom and gloom news media. It's the Nick Stenger Show. Coming to you live from the Stenger Family Office Headquarters, it's your host, Nick Stenger. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Nick Stenger Show. My name is Nick Stenger. We are the Stenger Family Office for the past 42 long years. It has been our mission to deliver both clarity and confidence to help secure your financial future. Welcome back to the 121st episode of the show. Are we due for a correction? Thank you for coming back each and every week to get the clarity and confidence, the good news, the math, data, statistics, the reasons why you ought to stay on your plan. This week's interview, we do have somebody, a special guest coming to you this week on the episode, so don't go away. After the monologue, we do have Raynan Calabrese, who is the CEO and president of Naper Settlement. Don't miss that one. That'll be really good. So just stick around after the monologue. You'll hear some break music, and then Rain and I will be live. So don't go away. She is fantastic. I am on the board of the Naperville Heritage Society, and uh, we'll be talking about history and, and the American dream and, and uh, very, very good content. So don't miss that one. Before we jump into this week's show, I will remind you a lot of our events are still on the calendar. We just got done with a record-breaking Honeywell 401k on a webinar on the Fidelity 401k. If you missed it, we'll get you the replay. In fact, if you missed any of the webinars, including Exxon, Chevron, Honeywell now, uh, get get over to us and we will get you the replays. But uh, we've got a couple more things coming. We are by the time you see this, we will be done with our open house event. Over over 120 people, I think, signed up, so that's exciting. We'll see you there. And then uh, we do have September 7th, Dr. Jeremy Siegel of the Wharton School of Wisdom Tree Asset Management. Don't miss it coming with us live in person for a lunch presentation, our Wealth Insights Forum at Gibson's in Oakbrook. Don't miss it, September 7th. And then the last thing on the calendar for 2023 is Investor Day 2024. It's this year though, we always look forward and that's going to be the 14th and 15th of November. Don't miss it, downtown Naperville, Hotel Indigo. The room block is filling up quickly, so get on there, get over to us if you're gonna stay at the hotel and come into town, give us a call, we'll get you on that. I do wanna just plug our two new shows, number one being the Monday meeting, which we were going to do every week. We are taking it monthly now, very, very good content. We've got Bon Roth, myself, Sam Hardy, produced by producer Billy, the top of the top, the best ideas coming to you each and every week where we take your questions live. If you're a client and you want to have a question featured on the next Monday meeting for August, send it in sam.hardy, H-A-R-D-Y, at stengerfamilyoffice.com. Give us a call. Send in your questions. Great show. And then we also have a new show starting, and that is going to be called Bullish, where we will cover stocks, earnings, everything going on at a ground floor level of the largest companies that we own in your portfolio. This week, we're going to be talking about Google, Visa, Microsoft, Sherwin-Williams, Coca-Cola, ServiceNow, Meta, which is Facebook, MasterCard, Comcast, AbbVie, Honeywell, Northrop Grumman, Chevron, ExxonMobil, and Procter & Gamble. So don't miss that show, Bullish. Myself, Sam Hardy, starting this week, will be released next week very, very soon. And we hope to release those on a weekly basis every Friday. Let's jump into this week's article are we due for a correction? Short answer is yes, we are due for a correction. We'll get into it. 
But I do want to say just just with all the doom and gloom negativity that we ended last year with and all the doom and gloom predictions that we entered 2023 with, uh, everybody has been pleasantly surprised, hopefully pleasantly surprised. And, and so we went into this year saying things aren't going to be bad. They're not going to be great. I have even been surprised at how strong market returns have been for 2023. But the good news is, is we have always taken this caution, cautiously optimistic approach as interest rates have gone up that things would not be terrible. And, and so that has saved your portfolio. If you're a client of the Stenger family office, that has saved your portfolio this year because we have not gone overly bearish. And I've run into clients all the time, prospective clients who say, Nick, my advisor got so doom and gloom and bearish that he put me in all fixed income, for example, and and uh, I'm only up 3% for the year when the market's up 16 or 17. So don't make that mistake. Don't try to time the market. Don't try to figure out when to get in, when to get out, because we can all be surprised. The market is a forward-looking indicator that doesn't just look at the next week or the next month or the next year, but now we're starting to get S&P earnings estimates for 2025. And earning estimates for 2025 are positive. They're, they're looking to be about $273 in earnings on the S&P 500, which I expect to be revised upwards better than that 273 number. And even so, if we trade the market at an 18 or 19 forward price earnings ratio, the S&P today, I believe, is fairly valued. Again, not without a correction on the horizon, but I believe fairly valued, not set for a doom and gloom all out collapse. So do not buy into this narrative. Don't try to adjust your portfolio now for something that you think bad is going to happen in, in a year or two. So uh, what we are seeing today, and, and by the time you see this, the Fed has raised interest rates. We're filming Wednesday. It will be released on Thursday, this week, the 27th. And by the time you see this episode or listen to it, uh, the Fed will have already raised a quarter point. We are now in the range of 5.25 to 5.5%. That is higher than we have been at in decades. And, and so I, th I think what you're going to see is you're going to kind of go into this early 2000s style Fed environment, earnings environment. Now, today, one of the great things that's different that's going to boost earnings, I believe, is technology. You're seeing this with machine learning, robotics, RPA technology, the cloud, everything that's, that we have today that we didn't have anywhere close to in the early 2000s. But I do think from a Fed standpoint, Jerome Powell wants to decide if he's going to be uh, if he's going to let inflation come back, which is the risk. That's what they're concerned about. If you're the Fed chair, if you're Powell, you don't want to have inflation go away and then come back. And so you are going to probably hold rates higher for longer. That's where I just have a little bit of caution. And, and so we're not doom and gloom. We're not bearish. We are still optimistic but just cautious from the standpoint for for our pre-retired clients people about three to five years out from retirement or, or our retired clients where we're saying just be aware of the math of your portfolio what i mean by that is if you are in an 80 20 portfolio as an example 80 percent being stocks 20 percent being bonds Two or three years ago, we were getting 0% on your cash. We were getting 0% on basically the 20% in the portfolio and in fixed income. And a lot of people were thinking, well, why don't we just put that in the market? Well, we, we hold that for our retired clients, our pre-retired clients. 
solely for the fact that you would have a buffer in case the market went down. 2022 proved that. We still made a return in 21. We made, we're making a great return in 23. But during the downturns like 2022, 2018, 2015, 11, all these different ups and downs, we've at least got a ballast in the portfolio. We were getting compensated next to nothing, basically 0% rates in 2020, 2021. Now we're finally getting compensated for that risk management process at the five and a half percent rate and we have not added duration yet to the portfolio we have not gone out and bought longer term bonds that's one of the conversations we just had before i came in to record this show today that's something we're looking at we we may add some duration at some point i think it's still a little too soon but we're starting to narrow down the time frame and then how you would do that and and i think that decision is coming soon to add duration uh, because the Fed will cap out at some point. And, and at some point, the Fed will say, okay, at five and a quarter to five and a half or five and a half to six or somewhere in this range, we are done raising rates and we are going to hold rates steady or uh, better yet, maybe even cut rates, which I actually think they should do. I'm, I'm in the camp now that I think rates need to start coming down. Uh, certainly the market agrees with that. And the projections today for 2025 are that the Fed will be at the 3.5% zone. I think that's actually probably high. I think they're, they're, if they cut, they're going to cut aggressively more than 35 And so just one word of advice, if you are a client of ours with BP or Honeywell or Shell or, of course, our big group of people at ExxonMobil on the pension, if you can just stick it out a little bit longer and, uh, and maybe work an extra year, maybe work an extra two years, get yourself to 2025, my opinion, I, I could be wrong, but my opinion is that rates will come down and you will possibly have the opportunity to pick up maybe 100, 200,000 on your pension. So, so just be watchful of that. This is not individualized, personalized financial advice, but this is one of the things we are watching for our folks with pensions. So be aware of what's going on. Let's jump in a little bit to some of the sectors and what's going on on an individual level. Remember the, the, the stock market, when we talk about it, is, is a number of things. Number one, it could be the Dow, which is a very small fragment of large cap US companies that have usually been around for a long time is not what we really watch. I, in my opinion, the Dow is not a great representation of what's out there. Rather, what we wanna look at is the S&P 500, 500 largest companies in the United States. Now, not all of them are great. Not all of them are perfect stocks. Many of them, though, are. And, and you have to be a pretty darn good company to get into the index. You have to be a top 1% or 2% stock out there. And so because of that, the S&P is comprised of companies that have a long history of raising dividends in a lot of cases, a long history of net income and profitability and earnings and all the rest of it, stuff we'd want to see, but not all the S&P. And, and so what we have watched happen the past 15, 10, and now especially the past five years is the largest chunk of companies in the S&P. And if we filter out the bottom 450 and only look at the top 50, have outpaced the general market by a factor of 50%. That is a massive, massive outperformance. And, and so you just have to be careful when you look at the S&P. Uh, uh, yes, you can buy the whole thing. You may be forced to if it's your 401k, but when we roll you over, when you become a client of the Stenger family office, we want to be selective. 
The reason why is because some sectors are a buy, some are not. Some stocks are a good buy, uh, others are not. Even in the same sectors, in the same geographies, in the same areas, one company may be a great company to own, one may not. So we have to be somewhat thoughtful about what we do. Let's start with banks and financials. After the SVB and First Republic fallout, remember those, those banks went under in March this year, many investors panicked out of all bank stocks, thinking that we'd end up in another 08, 09 style collapse. They oversold everything. They oversold U.S. Bank, J.P. Morgan, all the top banks, Bank of America. While there may be some pain ahead with regional banks, we do think that high quality large banks, the top of the top, had become unreasonably undervalued. And so some of these banks today are trading at the 7 to 10 times earnings, that's the price to earnings ratio, uh, 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 the 7 to 10 range, when in reality they probably should be trading in the 12 to 15 times zone. And, and so some of that will happen naturally if the Fed cuts rates they will be forced to see their earnings decline as net income, net interest declines. But you have to remember, the largest banks do not pay a whole lot in interest on their deposits, like some of the regionals or small banks. And, and so I think uh, uh, being selective, I think there's some great names in the banking and the financial sector that have been, become largely undervalued. Uh, and, and pay a 3 to 4% dividend, which make them attract an investment. Again, none of this is an investment advice. Uh, you have to do this on a plan, on an individualized basis. We never want to overdo it on one sector. But this is where some of the opportunity lies in the market. Healthcare. We've got 10,000 baby boomers retiring every day. But what's happened with healthcare stocks is that they've become a little bit overpriced relative to their peers. Um, in the pharmaceutical space and the vaccine makers, uh, uh, one of the things we've seen is, is companies like Pfizer, for example, have seen their stock prices plummet as vaccine sales have dropped. And again, not a recommendation to go out and buy them, but just a, a point that some of their stocks have become undervalued. And, and just because their COVID stock is off its all-time high and the sales have plummeted, um, some of their other products will continue to do just fine. They're producing great dividends. So these are some of the things we're looking at. Communication services. This is Meta, Google, Netflix. Here's an interesting thought on Meta, for example. Facebook and Instagram alone have 4 billion active daily users. Massive, massive. Almost 4 billion. I, I said daily. It's actually monthly, which represents 50% of the world's population. There are not a whole lot of products in, you, in, in human history that cover 4 billion or 50% of the world's population. That is a massive monopoly. That is just absolutely huge. Google stats are, are about the same, 4.3 billion monthly users. And, and so my point is, is there's just not a whole lot of companies out there that command such share over the marketplace and so one of the things you could see and and what people have brought up is said nick don't you think that these companies could get broken up by regulators well absolutely but that's not necessarily a bad thing for investors actually that could be a good thing and uh, we've done some analysis on this that would show that meta facebook instagram some of these pieces on their own could be worth substantially more than under the umbrella and same thing with google and same thing with amazon where these pieces of the puzzle actually are worth substantial amounts of money. So this is a sector we like, not as cheap as it was going into last year, but certainly a good place where if, if you have to allocate capital, I think long-term you'll be just fine. Energy stocks, oil and gas earnings have dropped 50% since last quarter. 
big drop, but they're still up year over year. And so this is the big part of earnings. When you look at the S&P 500, you see that earnings are dropping. Energy is really driving the discussion. And, and so if you strip energy earnings out, overall earnings are actually pretty good. So, so don't let energy spook you. Again, I have not gone overweight on energy. We have been very careful not to overdo it because energy stocks are so highly correlated to commodity prices. Commodities can be a speculation. And like we talked about on the Monday meeting on the second episode, go watch it. Very, very good episode. Talked about gold. Same thing can be true about oil stocks. When you are too heavily linked, to a commodity, you can wind up in this value trap world. You can end up in a world where uh, you're really not investing, you're speculating. And, and so that's what we want to avoid. So while we would have a maybe a 5 6% energy weight, we would not overdo it. Some of these companies are okay on a valuation standpoint, but there's something in investing you have to be careful of called a value trap. And, and that's where a company looks cheap, but that's because there's not a whole lot of long-term growth prospects. And what they do is because there's not a whole lot of long-term growth, there's not a lot of places to invest. They just give all their cash back to shareholders. And so they become high dividend payers. And that's one of the things you watch out for. We wanna own dividend companies, but with one caveat, we want to own companies that are growing dividends over time, not just high yield. Because if you buy just a high yield dividend company, one of the things that can happen is, is you get into a company that just has nothing to do with the cash. They don't know what else to do with it, so they are just issuing it out to shareholders. So a portion of the portfolio, not a massive part. I would be a little careful there. Technology. We've always broken tech companies into two major sectors. There's established tech is what I call it, and then number two, high octane tech. Established technology would be companies like Apple, Microsoft, Amazon. Amazon doesn't even, in, in a lot of indices, even get classified as tech anymore, but it really should. It, it's not really a, a consumer discretionary business like a Tesla or, uh, or some of these other stocks out there. And so uh, Amazon has this business called AWS, which basically is the profit engine of all of the company. And, and AWS is super dominant, highly dominant. It's, it is a tech company. And so that's why I put Amazon into the tech space. Apple, Microsoft, Amazon have absolutely dominated. And if you look at their returns, um, they have smoked the S&P, smoked all other stocks with the exception of Amazon, which has sort of struggled the past five years as they've pivoted on their uh, corporate strategy. But the point is, is uh, you don't want to sell established tech. That's my opinion. And I think you always want to own it, uh, at least for the foreseeable future. Now, we'll be assessing that. Maybe something would come up that we would change that. But these earnings are coming out, and, and they're strong. And, and these companies, again, are so dominant. There are so many iPhone users out there. There's so many Microsoft users, so many Amazon users that you just want to make sure you've got a place in your portfolio for them. And uh, you know, one of the problems you run into with an S&P 500 cap-weighted fund, that's where the biggest stocks just rise to the top. That's going to be in your 401k. Um, and, and your S&P 500 fund in the 401k would have this. Some of these, these S&P 500 indices now are showing 20%. 15% concentrated in one stock, you know, 50% of the index is five companies. And so that's where we'd be a little cautious. I don't think I'd want to go much more than maybe six, seven, eight percent in those names each. 
Um, and that's the that's the cautionary point is you just don't want to over concentrate. But I, I don't see any reason not to own them at all. So that that's established tech. One of the areas when we get into portfolio management, and that's what we are as portfolio managers, we are the allocators of our clients capital that we have to watch out for is what's the risk return payoff. We do this in the bond market. Do we want to own a, a one year bond that pays five and a half percent versus a five year bond that only pays five? Those are the kind of decisions we make for you. This, this is another place we make decisions like this is high octane tech. Is the volatility and the potential downside risk really worth the potential upside? You see this in tech stocks. Once in a while, one out of 10 is a 10 bagger and it goes up 10X and it, and it, blows, it shoots the lights out and it's a great investment. But more often than not, what happens when you actually direct, directly invest in the technology itself is, is you just don't know which ones are going to make it. And, and, and there's a great stat that I heard that if you equal weighted all the tech companies in 1999 and held on till 2023 till today, you would have made no money. Uh, Cisco was one of the top stocks in 1999 and, and all these other companies that had never gotten back to their record all-time peak, all peak levels. And so to me, as a capital allocator, I can make a good enough return for you. I can get very close, even sometimes beat the index by just owning established technology. I don't have to go out and bat a thousand. So it's not that we're going to beat the index every year by doing that but we're also going to be able to limit downside risk by not going out into these high octane names. And, and so they're, they're fun to kind of open up a brokerage account and trade them once in a while and put you know a couple thousand in here or there, that, that's fine. Um, but when it becomes so big a piece of your net worth, you can end up like the people did in 1999 and 2000 in the tech crisis. And, and uh, don't, let, don't, don't let those PE ratios fool you um, paying $300, three, 300 times earnings for a stock is usually a bad idea. Maybe once in a while it works out, but uh, history has not been kind to 100, 200, 300 price to earnings ratio companies. So that's where we'd be a little bit careful, a little bit cautious. When we look at the whole, whole portfolio and we look at the capital allo allocation decision, we look at companies that have the potential over the next three to five years to give us a 10. 12, maybe even a 15% annualized return. That's what we're looking for. And, and I'm not saying that's a guarantee. That, that you know, doesn't always happen. But if we're going to buy a stock in an environment where rates are 5.5%, where basically risk-free return is, is 5, 5.5, going towards 6, we just have to be careful what companies we own because we want to own a company who's got the potential to go up 10, 12, 15. We don't want to buy a stock hoping it's going to go up 6 or 7. That's not a good use of capital. And that's where the, the, the customized financial planning comes into play. I'd encourage you to get to us, get to somebody, get to some financial advisor, whether it's us or somebody else, who can do a plan for you. Because I think at some point, whether it's later this summer or even next year, you will have a correction. You will have a pullback. You're going to have some sort of doom and gloom. They call them black swan events, something that you don't see coming, and it'll happen. And when it does happen, you just want to make sure you don't get tossed overboard your financial plan. So stick to the stick to the plan. Hire somebody who can coach you, but do it now when times are relatively good. Don't wait for things to get bad and, and uh, scramble then. Get on a plan. Get somebody who's going to coach you on that plan so you don't fall overboard. The correction is coming. 
nobody knows when. Uh, I wish I had my crystal ball and we could figure it out exactly. But unfortunately, that doesn't exist. So we will have to just position for all markets, for all environments. We're going to try and give you a return even in, in good times and bad times and be consistent. That's our goal. And then the, the last goal is just to keep you on the long-term plan. Thank you for being with us. Again, we've got Raina Calabrese, CEO of Naper Settlement. Don't miss her. She's coming up right after this short break. And we'll see you next episode, episode 122. All right, Raina, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for the invitation. Yeah, it's uh, it'll be fun. It's been uh, we we've been wanting to get you on for a while, and and uh, your role as CEO and president of Naper Settlement. I'm sure people in Naperville will be very interested in that. And uh, but even beyond that, um, you're involved in so much history here locally. Mm-hmm. And I want to hear a little bit more about your family history. We were talking a little bit before the show started about how your family came over to the United States. Yeah. And But maybe start by telling people a little bit about what you do at the settlement. Sure. I have the best job in Naperville, plain and simple. I am the president and CEO of Naper Settlement, which is a public-private partnership between the city of Naperville and the Naperville Heritage Society. It is the city's museum and our role essentially is to show how our history from uh, pre-settlement through today is in so many ways tied to our state and to our national history and tells the story not only of how we grew up as a city but also how our nation grew up. So Raina, you're a lawyer by trade. I am. Right. Um, How'd you end up at the settlement and what was your career like before the settlement? I think you started 2014, somewhere in there? I did. Okay. I did. I started in 2014 and for those that might remember, there was one of those um, polar, what were they, polar? um, Vortex or? Vortex, yes, the polar vortex and I worked in the city and it took me, I left on the 620 train early that day and I got there after noon and I looked at myself in the mirror and it was a mess. It was an absolute mess, my makeup, everything. And I just looked at myself and I said, I'm done. I'm done working downtown, Um, although I enjoyed my job. And so I started to look for something local. And I also, my daughters at the time, you know, it was the life balance. Um, My daughters were uh, very involved in softball, as you know, they play through college, et cetera. So I couldn't make a game because I would have to take at least a half a day off to try to make a game. So just for that, I started looking for something more uh, nearby, but my husband is a lawyer in DuPage and in Kane and in Will County, and we've made a deal that we are not going to practice in the same area. So he said, well, what are you gonna do? And I said, I don't know, you know, it's, it, there's I-88, there's a whole lot of buildings, somebody's gonna want me for something, I don't know. And um, I started looking for jobs that would put you know, titles like director or president, et cetera. And the neighbor settlement job kept on coming up. And I frankly said, I don't know anything about museums. And I put it to the side. And probably about the seventh time I said, okay, 
let me just read this because, you know, it kept on going, being in the back of my mind going, hmm. So when I looked at the job description, actually, I realized that they weren't looking for a museum expert as in a curator or an exhibit person, that they were looking for someone that understood how to manage nonprofits, how to fundraise, how to manage staff, um, how to work with boards, uh, etc. And I had done that, how to do programs. I had done that for the American Bar Association for more than 15 years. It's the largest nonprofit for lawyers in the world. Uh, and I had some of the best uh, training and mentorship. And um, essentially, I had done all of those, uh, grant administration, grant writing. Um, and I thought, oh, well, this is interesting, and they're looking to do a transformation. This is what I do for the uh, American Bar Association, and it's also what I did when I was the executive director of the National Association of Women Lawyers. We went through a, a series of transformations there as well, and I thought, oh, this sounds like fun. Let me, uh, let me put my hat in, and here we are nine years later. I thought I would only stay four, three to four at most. <laughs> Well, and they don't—they don't seem to be rushing you out anytime soon. I think they've been pretty happy with what you've done over there. I hope so. I—it's—it's uh, a—it's a labor of love, truly. I've been a resident of the city of Naperville since about 1992. Um, my two younger daughters were born at um, Edward Hospital at the time, and they have grown up in that you know, seven mile radius, uh, they uh, love it and we love it. And for especially for someone like me that came from somewhere else, um, it was important to find roots for my family and to make sure that they were good, healthy roots in a community that we enjoyed, that we liked, and uh, Naperville was it. Well, tell people too, for everyone who's outside of Naperville, which is about half of our clients, maybe a little bit more, what is Naper Settlement? Why is Naperville so cool? Why is it the best city on earth? <laughs> which it has been ranked, what, maybe one or two for a while. That's right. Um, tell people what Naper Settlement really is and its role in the community. Sure. So Naper Settlement is a 13-acre museum, and um it, was, it started out as a magnificent gift, and uh, somewhere along the line, the, the way the story got a little bit buried, and part of what we hope to do is to bring that story back up. Um, it was a, a gift uh, from Carolyn Martin Mitchell. Carolyn Martin Mitchell was the daughter of Martin Mitchell, who was one of the settlers that came um, in the early 1830s when we were uh, essentially moving west as a nation. And George had four kids, uh, two married, two didn't, but none of them had children. And so when Carolyn was in her 80s, she started to think about what was going to happen with the hundreds of acres that she had, plus the money, et cetera, that she had, um, and there were no heirs. And so she also um, allowed the city to celebrate its 100-year anniversary on what you know today as Naper Settlement, which at the time were her orchards. And that gave her the idea of, wow, this is a place where my community can really gather all of it at once. So she um, created a will, um, and as part of that, she created a perpetual charitable trust. And in that trust, she essentially said, I will make a deal with the city of Naperville. If the city of Naperville accepts 
my 212 acres, more or less, at the time. Um, I will give that to the city as trustees, and in return, they will host and have my museum in perpetuity. So the museum started out with two buildings. It was just the mansion and the Kodoka Share behind her home, or the carriage house behind her home. And after that, as we had this great period of growth, particularly post-war, in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s, there was a lot of progress, progress, progress. And so many buildings were raised um, or destroyed and um, a group of folks in our community, and I think that's part of what makes Naperville great, um, is that people are very engaged in their community. So uh, created a grassroots effort to prevent a building outside of neighbor settlement. Um, and what they did then is they moved that building in and they've moved now, uh, we have about 31 structure uh, structures, about 25 of them more or less are historic, including John Naper's um, old uh, um, home. Uh, that's Joseph Naper's brother. And we also have the oldest worship space in DuPage County with uh, the meeting house. And so I think the important thing is these buildings are not fancy buildings. You know, this isn't Europe and marble and things like that. They're very plain buildings that had to stand the weather and the time. And I think their simplicity is part of the story. The strength in the simplicity of these wooden buildings um, is just an amazing part of the story. So the city essentially continued to gain and own these additional structures that were placed on our site. And today, that's really what makes um, Naper Settlement. So other than the mansion, for again, for people not in Naperville, if you're in Naperville, you probably have been to the settlement, maybe on a school tour, which is yes. huge. Generations um, after generations, by the way. Yes, which is which is fantastic. I remember doing that. Um, that was maybe fourth grade, fifth grade. Is that yep. usually when? Okay. And tell everybody else, there's a mansion, blacks, blacksmith shop. Mm-hmm. What else is, the, is, is at the museum? So as I said, there's a full 31, and it tells a lot of different stories. So we have the old post office, the Pawpaw, uh, the Pawpaw building is actually the old post office um, that was built in about 1833. That's about two years after Joseph Naper arrived. And it was also where the stagecoach stopped. So it was truly the center of Naperville at one point. Um, we also have, as I said, the meeting house, the John Naper home, and we have the chapel. Uh, The chapel is really what started the story of the Naperville Heritage Society. This was a group of people that did not want to see this structure come down. And so they raised the funds, moved it over in 1969. And so now I can tell you, as I tell people, we have hosted weddings from hippies to hipsters. and you hear actually, oh, my, gr- my grandparents got married here, um, and I'm getting married here. So it's been a wonderful, th- we have other very small buildings. The popcorn shop in town, Andy's Popcorn, for example. Um, preemption also, House. And the Preemption House is actually a recreation. Okay. So the Preemption House was built in the late 80s to 90s. Actually, I think it's in the 90s that it was built, and it's a recreation uh, to the T of the original preemption house. Which Abraham Lincoln did a yes. speech at? 
Yes, so we have oral history that, um, that, that Abraham Lincoln did um, come and give one of the speeches uh, at, uh, at the preemption house. What's interesting is it would make sense for him to have done that because, you know, we also had the Plank Road, which essentially is, think of it as the old toll roads from the past. Um, and so it would make sense that if he was traveling from Chicago or somewhere else, at some point he was going to intersect through that plank road coming this way. The interesting, there's an interesting history of the preemption house, um, the house, and it's both sort of a little bumpy or perhaps very bumpy, um, as well as also um, a, a, a show of determination and strength, et cetera. The federal preemption laws were passed in the 1830s, and the federal preemption laws is essentially what gave rise to the opening of and the settlement of the West. And west of Ohio was known as the Wild Wild West. So you're living in, and if you're any of our neighboring communities, you were living in what was once called the Wild Wild West. Um, and so when that came about, they needed to have a place to process so many things, right? Everything from when the judge came once a month or once every three months or depending um, to where were you going to reshoe your horses and fix the wagon wheels and get new supplies. Um, perhaps you needed to stay several nights. And so the preemption house was everything from a hotel, a tavern, a, um, a, a jury room, um, a, a restaurant. And across from it was the uh, blacksmith shop. And you could also do the, you could also uh, purchase horses, you could do a variety of things there at the preemption house. The actual preemption house was torn down, I think in 1947, somewhere around that time. Um, but you do walk in history. So anytime you walk uh, past Sullivan Steakhouse, that is where the actual preemption house stood. Wow. And across the street from that, in that small parking lot, that's where um, the blacksmith shop was. And perhaps more interesting than that is that is where all of the farm families uh, from all around, whether it was, you know, Wheaton or Plainfield or um, Joliet, Naperville, Lyle, etc. This is where all the families met to say goodbye to their sons and their husbands and their children when they went to fight in our Civil War. Wow. Um, so we truly do walk in history on a daily basis. And even though the spaces change, um, the story is still right there as you walk by it. Well, and you talk about transformation of the settlement. And there, I'm sure there's a lot behind the scenes that people don't know about, or maybe you don't want to even share publicly. But um, I, I think the from, from my vantage point, until being on the board at the settlement, at the Heritage Society, just as an outsider kind of looking, um, I have seen it go from, oh, it's a little um, settlement, pioneer town, this is where you go when you're in fourth and fifth grade, to now it's really fun. You go for Naper nights, there's the agricultural center, which I do want to talk about too. Um, there's, you got Ale Fest coming up. Yep. And so you have done such an incredible job, I don't think people really understand this, of turning it into history from the start of Naperville, bringing it up to the modern era. And, and with the Agricultural Center now, too, that is so cool. I, I think before the favorite building for me was the blacksmith shop. 
you know. Yep. And now I think it might be the agricultural center. Well, just hold on because we're not done yet. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the actually the it was the Naperville Heritage Society that um, that made the decision that they wanted essentially to tell a complete story, a full story of um, everything that has happened, as I said, pre-settlement to today. And part of the reason was because we found really large voids. So at one point it was only the 1800s, then it was expanded to the first 100 years. Well, the first 100 years left us at 1931. And some really big things happened in our history since. Maybe a little thing called World War II, um, you also have the creation of all the subdivisions and the switch of the land use from agrarian to, you know, what we see today, uh, the civil rights movement, the technology corridor that was created, and there's many more. But it left, it, it left some very huge gaps about who we were, and certainly then our own society globally, but certainly locally, has changed. And I think that one of the important things that the Heritage Society recognized along with the city is that it was only telling one small piece of our story. And it's an important piece of our story. But there was a story before that of the Potawatomis that um, the Prairie Potawatomi, for example, that inhabited uh, along the DuPage River along with various other Native American tribes. And there was a lot of other story after that. Um, in the 1900s, the 20th century, this century. And so the idea was really, well, how do we tell all of that story? How do we keep what we have and continue to grow? So it took us a little while and um, the board essentially decided that what we wanted to be was a campus of lifelong learning discovery and actually fun for all people. And that is what we've been um, tasked to do. And so, um, we, as we found those gaps, for example, the Agricultural Interpretive Center was part of that. We, we found that we had a huge gap in not telling our story of um, uh, both our national and international contributions to um, the economics through agriculture, for example, um, as much as our struggles in, during the whole um, civil rights and, and before that. You know, how did we become a sundown town, for example, and how did we not, how did we stop becoming a sundown town? Really important stories were somewhere in the mix. Um, part of the whole subdivision piece, you know, until the Mosiers, the idea of having um, a tennis court, a swimming pool, uh, a worship space, all in that one subdivision was not done in the United States and after Harold Mosier, it became the norm throughout the United States. So really important things um, that were essentially um, invisible. And so um, we developed um, what we call the purple document, which essentially is our long strategic plan, our long range strategic plan. Um, and we've been chopping away at it. And essentially, we divided our efforts into a few different areas. Um, we certainly wanted to be a place of worthwhile investment, and that covers a lot of the philanthropy, a place uh, also of uh, to be an economic engine for our city. And so you see that in the events and some of the rentals and things that we do. Hoping um, you can bring back Chris Kendall Market. 
I know it's tougher right, to I do, know. but. Um, well, we have talked about whether or not we bring back, well, not necessarily bring back that, but to put together some kind of a holiday uh, event. It, but, you know, we've got to get through the capital projects first. So we have two of those. Um, Which are Innovation Gateway. Innovation Gateway and uh, the Agricultural Hub that we're creating, the Agricultural Center Hub. And tell people about Innovation Gateway, because that's pretty neat. So as we were looking to tell the full story, we started thinking about, well, how are we gonna tell the 20th century and we're a quarter of the way through the 21st century? You know, it's not like you can go and pull three more buildings from the 20th century, two from uh, the 21st century and go, there we go, done. And the 20th and 21st century is much more about things that are not necessarily tangible, like a building or a wagon. Um, It's about, you know, telecommunications and computers and transportation. Um, And so we started thinking, well, how can we do that? How can we do it justice? And how can people hear first voice, the stories of those who lived them? And by the way, you know, we've done a lot of work in collecting those oral histories because we want people to tell their story. We don't want to tell it for them. So we found that Innovation Gateway um, could serve a few practical purposes and this very important purpose because we could use technology to tell that 20th and 21st century, which has a big, technology has a big imprint on both of these centuries, as you know. So that's what Innovation Gateway will be doing. It will um, become an experience of its own digitally inside. It's, it'll take us probably still another two to three years to actually do the phase two of what goes inside. But then there's other practical things. We never had a space where we could have all the kids have lunch together, for example. Um, they would come as a school together and we would have to you know, divide them into different buildings because we don't have one that is large enough to house them. So it solves some of those practical problems. Is it gonna be the new entrance it for is. the museum? Okay, and that's really cool because it's called the Innovation Gateway, which is, it's neat because you're going into this old space, but you're going through a new entrance, which yeah. is really important, I think, because uh, what you guys are trying to do is you're trying to connect the, like you said, the present to the past and tell a lot more of the complete story, the the whole history. And so I, I think it's neat that you're starting with te- technology. You kind of walk through, okay, this is the this is the modern era, but here's how we got there. Is that kind of the idea? It is. Okay. And the other part is to give those buildings really um, their due, right? They, if you think of them as people, they didn't just live in the 1800s. They didn't just have a second and a third birthday. They didn't get moved to where we are until the late 80s and for some of them in the 90s. And actually some were moved, uh, a couple of them were moved, I think, post-COVID, so maybe four years ago, small buildings. But nonetheless, they lived in our community. They saw World War I come by and World War II come by and they saw us Um, move from an agrarian society to a suburban society they saw a lot and so if you think of them as people they have a lot more than one story to tell so one of the things that we hope to do next year is to start the master plan and the next long-range plan of where we're going to go and the idea is that innovation gateway is that one place where you will 
be introduced to the rest of all of those stories. You know, the Papa House was, uh, as I said, certainly the stagecoach stop. But guess what? It was there in the 60s as progress came along, um, and it's our hippies. Uh, so there are a lot of stories that those buildings can tell, um, not just one. And so it's part of what Innovation Gateway will do is to help project the rest of those stories even through the buildings that were initially built in the 1830s. So our first long range plan was about five years and we're at about year five. So we're looking at the next one and that will include a larger sort of master plan about who do we wanna be? How do we plan to be um, thriving in the next 20, 30 and 50 years? Because remember that whatever you live today is what was prepared for you 30 years ago, 50 years ago. That's what you live today, whether it's the roadways, whether it's the kind of government, whether it's the school system or the park district or the libraries, you think about any of those things. They were prepared for you 30 or 50 years ago by people who had really nothing. They started this. And so history is really the rails upon which you plan the present in which people will live 50 years from now. And so that's part of what we are doing ourselves for us because we want to make sure that it's the place you want to come to in 20 years. Well, we talk a lot about that here because we're eight generations now in Naperville, yeah. which is pretty cool. And that baby's beautiful, by the way. Well, thank you. Um, and we tell our clients this because we have clients who are four generations with us now, which oh. is really cool. And we always say you have to, 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 to know where you're going, you have to know where you are and where you've been. You have to know your, your history, you have to know where you are today, and then that'll give you an idea of the future. And my grandpa was not quite as interested, Grandpa Jack, who yep. my son's named after, not as much interested in the history preservation like my dad is, but even just stories he would tell me. You know, and I grew up with those stories, not, not again, not as in depth, but he would tell me the stories of how Naperville had a couple thousand people when he was growing up, and there's one sheriff who would just stand outside the bank with a revolver, you know, <laughs> and and that was Naperville. Yeah. And and what's your opinion? How did Naperville go from a couple thousand people, nice little city, like a lot of these little towns were three, four thousand? How did it go from that to what it is today? You know, so the so here's the interesting thing about um, Naperville and communities as a whole. Uh, the things that tied Naperville that are at the absolute core of what Naperville is hasn't changed ever. Um, when Joseph Naper came, within three months he had a school teacher. In the first two years, he had a school built. And by the way, girls were also attending school. Now they were learning traditional girl things, but they were nonetheless learning how to read, how to write, etc. You're saying so, they weren't becoming lawyers. No, but they should have. <laughs> um, but, the, but the point was education was always at the very heart of what we do, right? Um, community is another part. Um, they were settlers. If they'd had band together, they were all going down. So this idea of binding one another as a community is something that has also st stood the, ten, uh, you know, the, 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 the time. The other one is entrepreneurship. 
you think of how many entrepreneurs that are successful at a large scale or a small scale in Naperville. And, you know, there's, there's many of them. And the fourth one is family. You can do anything you want to do for family here. Um, so somewhere between those four things, we've never forgotten. Now, maybe today we define family differently, um, or you know we talk about education differently, but those core things have never changed. And th- we have a very engaged community, right? Um, and it's one of the most important things. There, there's a very old study that Harvard did, I think back in the 70s, and it was called The Broken Windows. And so the idea is if you go through communities and you can count how many broken windows you see, it'll tell you how much it is or isn't thriving. Because the idea is that when you feel engaged, you will not allow that broken window to be there too long. Um, and so that's the kind of place that, that, you know, that we have. You think about the, the public comment that we have at, um, at, at our council meetings. You have members of our community speaking about everything. And it really is the way it should be. I think that's one of the things that has made this strong. But I also want to say for the folks that are outside of Naperville, one of the important things that, um, that we are finding out now as we're looking at the history really in a much broader perspective is that you know, we never existed alone. We can't do it alone. We haven't done it along, alone. And we have been part of all of those communities in what we would call the metro Chicago area throughout, as well as um, the Chicago land area. We were very, very connected, whether it was because farmlands were both in what we would call, you know, Lyle and Naperville today, um, whether it was because of the businesses that we had, um, stockyards, for example, in Chicago, uh, whether it was the Plank Road itself, uh, we have always been a large part of the DuPage County, the Will County, you know, those outlining um, areas. And our story cannot be told without telling their story, too. And their story can't be told without ours. And so it's part of what we're looking at in the next five years to also expand to ensure that we're, you know, that we're giving the stories um, the, 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 the proper focus. Um, and how did we grow? You know, truthfully, we are anywhere America. We truly are. Uh, I think it was in those four things that I mentioned and a realization of opportunity and frankly, um, loss. The, there was no gain without the loss. We understand our community as we understand it today. But you know, I, I look at the articles, for example, from the early 80s um, of farmers that said, I will never sell. <laughs> um, and the struggles, and they talk about how, you know, this was their grandfather's land or their great grandfather's land. So it's not just a field to them, those sorts of things. There was a loss that happened for this game to occur. And um, on whatever side you stand of that, um, we know that we got here today through a lot of struggles and through a lot of opportunity. You know, the other thing that Naperville did is they saw land and they bought it. 
they bought it. They kept on acquiring it. Um, and that gave them opportunities, I think, beyond the imagination of perhaps the people that were here in 1910. Yeah, and, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I think also some of the ways that the downtown was built up and some some of the ways the industry was built up in Naperville too, it wasn't a monopoly. It was always, and other than maybe the Mitchell Museum and, and that piece of land, but um, especially in the in the late 1800s, the early 1900s, it seems like there were a lot of families involved, not just one, where you go to some of these cities and the entire history is one family, maybe two families. Naperville has got this thriving history of all these different families. One of them is now mayor of That's Naperville. Right. Cool That's story right. there. Um, our family certainly, and and all these families that collectively, there there it it seemed to me there wasn't this massive monopoly like you have that dictates how things go. And I think that actually contributed yeah. to the success. Yeah, absolutely. I think that is true. And it wasn't just wealthy families that were contributing. A lot of what you see in the early part of the 20th century and perhaps even through uh, later times, it, it, you have a lot of what you would call the town families and you would have um, the farm families. And there were large employers um, like Crayler, for example, you know, that was certainly a, a large employer, uh, but certainly Stengers. And you see, for example, the Stenger family moving completely away from beer and moving towards real estate and then moving into finance, for example, because these were the opportunities. These were the places where the opportunities were for your family, for example, in that tremendous growth of the mid-century, last century, real estate was the perfect place to be, whether it was commercial or residential. Um, and so I think you see those shifts, uh, you know, in so many of, uh, of, of the families. And yes, there are so many families. Uh, it was funny because when we were actually building the Innovation Gateway, as we were putting together the materials, we said, you know what, let's put those core families in the back of this uh, piece, this promotional piece that we were doing. Well, we ran out of room. <laughs> there, yeah. you know, there were just, yeah. there were too many of them. So absolutely, cool. it's a absolutely. And I think that's what happens. Some of them might be working on community. Some of them might be working on education. Some might be working on both. Some might be working on, you know, family. But the point is there are a lot of people that are engaged really truly engaged and they pass that on to their children well in going to high school i went to naperville north one of the main things and i'm sure this is every naperville high school is you get to senior year and you're like i'm going to get out as far away from naperville as possible i'm sure you saw this and now i didn't go that far i went to wheaton college my first year went to loyola so stayed pretty close but i had friends who went all over the country and and they said, oh, I, you know, I can't wait to get out of Naperville. Well, fast forward all this time later, and they're all coming back to Naperville. Mm -hmm. And they're starting, if, if they want to raise a family, they're coming back here. If, they, if they've gotten married and they're coming back looking for a house, Naperville's top of the home search. Yep. And I, I think it's funny to see that, that uh, you know, kind of the, the full circle coming back home. And certainly that's part of it, the, the drawback home. But there's a lot here that's, pretty good and I was joking with one of our clients as nice as Florida is during the Chicago winters and Texas and Arizona and all these warm places we don't have hurricanes here 
Nope. Uh, maybe an occasional tornado. Maybe. Got a little bit close the other night. But this is really just such it. You've got elements of the city. You've got elements mm-hmm. of Chicago right here. You've got elements of the, the suburbs. A little quiet sometimes. Although my wife and I live downtown, which is nice. A little bit more, a mm-hmm. little bit more action down there. And um, but but there's really not a whole lot that you can't do in Naperville. There's not a whole lot of places you have to leave to go to yeah. to do what you want to do. I think part of well, number one, I have a daughter like that. Um, before she went, she was going to college. She told me that. Is this the daughter that just got married? No, this is my older one who's now 35. Okay. So she said to me, you know, as soon as I graduate, I'm out of here. I'm going to another state. I'm doing something else. She ended up going to Benedictine University. Um, and she lives about, I don't know, 20 minutes from me today because great schools, great this, you know. Um, so, and we see it in her friends also. Uh, one of her very best friends just bought her parents' home um, right here in Naperville for the kids and the education. So I think that's true. But, you know, I, I think it's a little bit, certainly the opportunities that you have, but there is a sense of identity, right? And, and I don't want to say just pride, because it's a little bit deeper than that. Um, saying that you're from Naperville um, gives you a sense of identity for you. Well, first you tell people out of state you're from Chicago. Well, that's true. And then they ask you where you're really from, and then you tell them Naperville. And they say, oh, I've heard of that, (laughs) right? Um, But I think there is a genuineness uh, by and far, if we're talking just generally, there is a genuine feeling of home and identity. And as a community, we give those things importance um and i think that is part of what draws them back you know that is the the point where you're starting to become parents uh or you're thinking about that you start to think about what who am i going to be as a parent for my child and you start thinking of well i knew who i was or who my parents were and this really felt like i could identify with so I think that's part of the move, uh, you know, part of the move back. And for us, it's a really important component of what we want to tell is the stories of how do you get to enjoy what is really great about this city? How do we struggle um, through the moments that are difficult? And we just had, you know, a few years back, we had several very difficult moments in our community. How do we get past that? What do we do? How do we change? And I think that's the other piece about this community, that it is introspective. And that it does have, um, generally speaking, the or at least enough members somewhere in there that go, okay, this is not working for our community anymore. What are we going to do? And so then the pressure starts to build at a community level, at a government, at a government level, et cetera. And hopefully somewhere in that we end up at a better place. So one daughter just got married. Two, well, I have one just got married. Just got married mm-hmm. a week ago? No, Saturday. Oh, Saturday. Okay. So that's exciting. And we were talking before the show, uh, one is a lawyer? One is entering law school. Going to law August. school. And mm-hmm. one is going to med school? Mm-hmm. Okay, and then youngest one? 
So the youngest one is in law sc- is going to law school okay. in August. Okay. And by the way, got a full ride, which is really great. That's not a bad thing. Not a bad thing at all. Um, the other one is in med school. And the oldest one, the middle one, just got married and is in med school. So by the way, she'll be married but living apart from her husband. And um, the oldest one is the one that um, that has her master's in uh, in um, uh, data analytics and works in Oak Brook. So when I hear that and I hear what your kids are doing um, and what you and your husband and, and knowing your background with your, your mom and, and you are kind of like our family where like a lot of immigrant families, education is the number one thing. Mm-hmm. So talk a little bit about your background. Um, you're on your mom's side, it's Spanish? Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, on both sides it is, but my... So you have to remember, my my parents are, my mother's just about 96, so you're going almost a full century for them. My father's, it was very common in Spain for people to have either land or businesses in Latin America. So on my father's side, they had, um, they had land and businesses and things in Ecuador and also generations of people that did you know that that were in Ecuador on my mother's side um, they were in Argentina and in Cuba Um, so my mother's father was well father and mother were the very first to have um, ready-made clothing in um, in Argentina in Buenos Aires and on the other hand, they were also the people that lost everything when Castro went to Cuba. Um, on my dad's side, they, um, they, they, they moved back and forth, uh, but, uh, but they were there for generations. Some of them were presidents of Ecuador, et cetera. So um, the families would travel from Spain and back. Um, and so my parents uh, met in Spain. They got married in Spain. And then they went to uh, South America. I'm the last one, so I was born in, a, in, in Ecuador. And then my father was recruited by the US government because there was a shortage of um, gynecologists and obstetricians in the US in the early 70s wow. or 60s. And so um, he had to pass a test at the US Embassy in Ecuador. And then that group of people had to go to Chile to pass another test. And then that group of folks then had to go to Miami and do some other kind of test. Um, And then he was approved for um, a visa to come and um, to work as uh, as a physician here. But of course- what year was that? uh, That was in 1973. And so when he got here, of course, he had to do his residency again and then pass the medical boards again. So my dad learned to speak English on records. Um, And so when he got here, because we didn't have any family here, he got here with his suitcase and he had his uh, residency picked out. So he got out of O'Hare Airport and had his suitcase and in a cab and he basically said to the cab driver, I need to go to the cheapest hotel that is walking distance from this hospital. Um, so he came first, 
then my mother came and about a little bit less than a year later we came Um, and we first moved to rogers park which is now it used to be rogers park hotel um lived there for a little under a year then they bought a little bungalow in chicago and um although i love chicago my um my brothers well our bicycles got stolen (laughs) and then my brothers were approached by somebody something i don't you know i and i don't know the story exactly but it was something to do with uh, gangs and my mother put the house for sale the next day and moved to Northbrook. And I read that she moved to Northbrook because good things happen up north. She said, "You always have to, you always have to aim yourself north, you know, because because of the North Star, um, just like finding Jesus." So um, she decided to go north. That's awesome. <laughs> so Northbrook, very fitting. Yep. So it was Northbrook. Yeah. Okay. Um, so we lived in Northbrook until. You know, we all got married, grown up, and went away. So you guys are like, especially on my um, my mom's side, my grand- grandma came over as the first generation from Hungary. Huh? And so I grew up with an immigrant grandmother, first, first generation, thick Hungarian accent. And her joke was when people would say, what, did you just get off the boat? She'd say, no, actually, I took a plane here, just so you know. And that was, you know, but but I grew up with the values of, um, how awesome this country is, yeah. you know, and she instilled that in me and my cousins and the rest of the family that that she had seen what had happened in Europe. She had seen what had happened um, during World War II, and she loved this country because of it. And I'm sure you grew up with some of that with your mom. Yeah, um, some of the same, but, but different, because you have to remember that Spain was one of the countries that did not enter the, the, the Second World War. Um, they had a civil war of their own that ended shortly before the Second World War started. And so my mother um, lived through the Spanish Civil War. And I think in some ways um, that is worse because you see families divided. Um, And to this day, my mother does not throw away a piece of bread, for Mm -hmm. example. And she has to have everything in pairs, one for now and one for just in case. Um, you know, just things that have set in there. And her father died, actually, when she was very young. So she ended up um, growing up with her aunt and her uncle. And then the Spanish Civil War broke out. So it was not an easy life um, for her. And I think the most important thing, though, for my mother was, um, you know, my mother is a super brilliant intellectual type person but she didn't have the opportunity to study she actually wanted to study so my mother went through nursing school um, entirely and she knew that her grand that her mother was really not approving approving of her going to uh, become a nurse so um, she went through the nursing program and then to get her license at 26 she needed my mother's permission or I'm sorry her mother's permission because the father had died. And so when she went to get that, um, my grandmother said, absolutely not. Not one of my daughters will be a nurse so that people think that all they do is have affairs with the doctors. Um, It is not morally (laughs) right. Um, So she never was able to thrive professionally. And so um, she instilled in, in my sister and in I that we had to absolutely be 
educated in all of us, but particularly for women, um, that under every circumstance, you had to be educated and you had to be able to be a professional in whatever you chose. It, and then for her, it didn't really matter. My sister studied psychology, for example, and you know, I always knew that I wanted to be a lawyer, but, um, and it was, uh, and you know, for me, I got married young. I didn't have a great marriage. I uh, had my daughter, I got pregnant, I think three months after I got married, my, my first marriage. And so um, by 26, um, I had a child. I was fighting custody of my child, getting divorced and going to law school. Wow. Um, and uh, so what you're doing now is easy so compared yeah, to that. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, somewhere along the line, sometimes I think about that and I go, my daughter's 24. <laughs> um, so, you know, but but she was very helpful. Um, she was helpful both from an emotional perspective and, you know, from ta- helping to take care of my daughter, et cetera. But um, yes, and, and that's what she would say. You know, the opportunity that you have to be able to be whomever you want to be here is something that you have to remember every day. And, um, and it's something that I tell my daughters all the time. When the elections come by, I, tell, I, I, I often tell them, I don't want to know who you vote for, but you better vote because it took a lot of women's lives and mental health and they were jailed and they were raped and they, you know, they, they were um, uh, marginalized for you to be able to have this right to vote. So you better vote. You're not too busy to vote. Um, And the idea that we can build the type of society or community that has the responsibility to include every different perspective, whatever that is, and that has an opportunity for you to be whomever you want to be, that doesn't happen everywhere. And if you give me the opportunity, I can tell you one really important story where I saw that. Um, so as you know, I used to work for the American Bar Association, and my job, I had well, I had several jobs, but I did a lot of work abroad. And I want to say this was probably in 2010, 11, something like that. I had the very first group of female lawyers from an Arab nation, the very first group. Um, that was in 2011. And they were asking, you know, how is it that they can get stronger, et cetera. And so we talked about, you know, forming organizations and associations like the American Bar Association or the National Association of Women Lawyers, et cetera. And one of the things that they said to us was, we cannot form any groups of any kind for anything, not just for lawyers, but for anything. Um, The ability to organize as a group is illegal. Wow. So think about what that does in terms of your opportunity as a profession or as a person to impact the society that you want to build and how lonely you feel as a professional when you want some help or just or just some collaboration um so i think that alone tells you what how privileged we are um 
as 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 a country and as a place to be able to just simply organize doesn't that sound silly just to simply organize the grassroots for example to save this church for the naperville heritage society is illegal um and so what that allows is it allows governments to monopolize and to control um, every aspect of your life, number one. And number two, it builds communities of mistrust among your neighbors. And so you really do begin to build a life that is very narrow. Um, so I... You know, I, I, I can tell you um, from, me, from me, from my parents, um, like I said, my father came with a suitcase and, you know, built his own practice and educated his children. And, you know, um, and that was always what my mother, my, my mother would say. I've never gotten a speeding ticket. <laughs> um, like, truthfully, <laughs> I can't say that. Um, you know, we have never needed any kind of assistance because we've got the greatest thing we have an opportunity to work and we can work one job we can work four jobs we can work five jobs but there is always an opportunity to be who you want to be um because you can build the life that you want to build so your opinion american dream still alive or is it dead like some people say you know it's an interesting thing um for me, and, and this is, you know, for me personally, I'm, I'm not speaking on behalf of the museum or anything, but for me personally, um, I think so because uh, I continue to see those immigrant families just like me. I mean, I came, I don't know, 48 years ago, something like that. Um, but I see those same kind of families building businesses and professions and buying homes and, you know, and, and struggling like we did too. Um, but I do see them progressing. Uh, so for me, I think so because I think the you know the the idea is in freedom of thought, right? In the ability that you can build the life that you want to be, and it doesn't have to be like somebody else's. And much of that then is um, is what you're going to do with that from my experience um and i see it with my siblings you know i so um for me i yeah i think so i am saddened to think that for some it's not there because i think it's also attitude right if you feel that it isn't there um then the likelihood that you will work towards it lessens well i think there's two things and this is true for my grandma from my 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 both my parents side is there were never any excuses you know it was like hey my grandma just got here not on a boat on a plane <laughs> from uh, hungary and it's like you have to figure it out and there were never any excuses it was just this is how it's going to be and this is what we have and we're going to make it work and that that was number one working two jobs working three jobs doing what it took you know and and then I think the second thing was our our faith, you know, and I think that was mm -hmm. true with your your mom too. Mm -hmm. um, it's true with your mom. I One of the quotes I liked was she, she said, I, I think this is her quote that says, your job is to fight for what's right. God's job is to decide who wins. Yep. I love that. Yep. 
um, that was I came home one day and I don't even remember the why but I but it was you know it was sort of um, it, it was a different time and people were much more vocal and open I think about issues of discrimination and being Hispanic and so on and I don't remember exactly what it was but it was something about the fact that I was Hispanic so I couldn't you know I couldn't X I don't remember it and um, and my mother would basically said to me you know what you're gonna have to work harder you're gonna have to do more you're gonna have to prove yourself a hell of a lot more to everybody every day all the time and I said well that's not fair and my mother, you know, that's when my mother said, hey, life isn't fair. And, you know, you, you basically have to show up for the fight and you let God decide who wins. So that's how I approach much, you know, much of what I do. Um, hopefully a lot of the times it's, it's good. But it does make for a very simple life. You know, I don't, have to, um, I don't have to worry about whether I'm doing the right thing or what's most convenient for me. I just do what's right and then I say, well, Good luck, God. The rest is up to you. So let's talk a little bit operationally. You're running a big organization. Let's talk numbers a little bit. How many people? Uh, we have, in terms of employees, we have uh, about 40, give or take. Okay. And um, how, how much in revenue does the settlement? Did, give us some of the background, some of the numbers of what you really oversee. So, uh, as I said, this is a public-private partnership. So the city of Naperville provides a part of the funding, and then the Naperville Heritage Society provides another piece of the funding. And together, that's essentially what becomes our annual budget. The city provides about $2.9 million, $3 million, somewhere, you know, somewhere in there um, on a yearly basis. And I know that for some, uh, they say, well, that's, that's a lot of money. And it is a lot of money. But think about having 31 structures and as I said about 25 of them are historical so it's not like I can go to my you know my local Home Depot and get a I don't know can of paint and a brush and hopefully it looks better um, they are very expensive uh, to keep we have roofs uh, are very expensive <laughs> yes they are um, for example the restoration of the mansion was a two-point eight million dollar project in 2002 um, and the roof itself the piece of the roof that we had to do now was about 350,000 and part of it is because things were built different you know for example with the mansion um, there's something called um, parging and if you look at it it's actually not this the yellow or I'm sorry the the um, red bricks um, they were frugal they used bigger, more industrial bricks, and then over that there was a parging that went on that made, literally, they drew the lines so that it looks like brick. Like brick. Well, we don't do that anymore. And I believe there's only one guy in the United States that does it, and I think the other one is in Ireland, I believe. Sounds like a good business to go into, for those that's, of you listening. That's right. Um, and so a lot of it is like that. You know, we have to go do a lot of the research, pay the researchers, find out what was used in 1840 versus in 1880, um, and then with all that information, then figure out how are we going to then um, repair and keep up the building. And again, there would, so it does take a lot more, um, a, a lot more, frankly, a lot more money. 
Um, and then we have 13 acres, you know, um, of roads and gardens and um, bushes and a variety of things. Plus, of course, you have um, the salaries. Um, and so in that's about the three. It ends up, depending on the year, it's somewhere between 48%, 52% is what the city will provide, and then the rest the Heritage Society brings in. And a lot of what the Heritage Society does is either sort of, you know, help bridge the gap between the repair in the building, for example, um, or also develop the programming um, that comes along. Um, you have to pay experts to develop some of the programming, um, everything from you know, the special boxes that we keep our artifacts in. There's a whole lot of expenses. So when you look at it, it's probably close to about, right now, it's uh, probably close to about $6 million. Um, with respect to the capital projects, for example, I think the our city got a pretty good deal, and I'm very proud of it. And I know that our board is very proud because they all worked so hard, and so did our staff. Um, but the two capital projects uh, for phase one were about $11 million. And we were able to raise that $11 million in about four and a half years, COVID included. And that's pretty large for an organization that really never raised over a million dollars. Um, so the city provided of that 11 million, 2.4 million, and the rest essentially was um, was brought in by the Naperville Heritage Society. So again, the engagement and the community engagement, et cetera. And now um, we're on phase two of those capital projects. So now it's about putting the substance inside the buildings. And um, we've had some really good luck uh, we've got some really great news that I can't share just yet, but it's really, really good news. Um, I should be able to share it by the end of July, and um, and and I think it's a testament. Uh, and then aside from that, you know, mind you, the the revenue that comes in, for example, from the school groups and the weddings uh, and a variety of other things. Um, uh, some of the rentals of the events, like the ale fest, etc. All that money is revenue for the city of Naperville. So that goes back to the city of Naperville. Um, and then there are other fundraisers that uh, the Naperville Heritage Society does do, like Napier Nights, for example, is something that goes through the Heritage Society. But uh, no matter where the money comes from, whether it's city money or Heritage Society money, the Heritage Society um, has only one benefactor, and that is the museum. So you look at an organization of this size, the budget that you run, the 40 people at the Heritage Society, or at the settlement, um, what are you doing, and maybe we, this is something we can end on, what are you doing opera operationally, just to give people a look behind the curtain of what actually goes on at an organization like this? And I will just say, I think one of your best skills um, obviously, you're very competent. You know what you're doing. That helps. <laughs> but I, I think the other thing is the other side of you, which is you really care about people. And anybody that you that knows you and anybody on the board knows this is you really take a special interest in getting to know people, you know, and I think that's huge. But other than that, um, tell people a little bit, what do you actually, what does it take to run an organization like this? Well, you know, when we started to do the transformation, the first place that we looked at is us internally 
So before the capital campaign was done, we looked at ourselves internally. And I, if, for those of you that want a little bit of advice, if you're going into an organization, if you're doing nonprofit, the first place that you got to look is your finances. Um, so when I first started, that was the place that I looked at. How are they being run? What do we need to do? Uh, you know, how are we ensuring that that nothing bad happens and that everything good happens? Um, and then we went department by department looking at, okay, if we want to do this transformation as the board has directed us, what needs to be in place for that to happen? Do we have the right people? Are they in the right seat on this bus? Um, and for us, one of the things was, as I, you know, as I said to our staff, you're either on the bus or you're off the bus. There's no ride-alongs. Um, I don't care if you have a faster car, a better car, or you're going to go right next to me. That doesn't, you know, we're going to be on one bus together, and everybody has to be in the best possible position. And I oftentimes um, think of myself because, you know, people are saying, I hear that. Raina, you're doing such a great job. Well, Maybe me, but when you're saying Raina's doing a really great job, my director of finance is the one that's doing a great job. My director of marketing is doing a great job. My event planner is doing a great job. You know, the curatorial staff is doing a great job. The buildings and grounds people are doing a great job. It is all of that collective. And I think one of the most important things is the work culture. Just think about it. I, I'd have to spend 10 hours with these folks every day. I hope they like me. I hope they, they look for a place where they feel that they are valued, that they are respected, that no matter what happens, whether we agree or disagree or don't agree, um, there is no screaming, there's no carrying on, there's none of that. Uh, you will be ushered in respectfully and you will also leave respectfully, no matter what. Um, and so I think in creating that, and I always tell my staff, listen, I'm like the conductor of an orchestra. I'm not the best violinist not the best piano player, I'm not the best trumpet player. If I have to step in, I can step in, but I won't be as good as you. But what I do know is I know when everything is just in sync and what needs to get tweaked here, moved over there, that's sort of you know my special power. But the rest of what gets done, the reason that we have the best pianist is because I have the best pianist, and it ain't me. Um, and you know, my 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 hope is that we can bring that kind of attitude throughout. Um, I expect that of our leadership staff, and I expect it of everyone else. If you have the opportunity to help, help. And um, B, I am going to give you my job is to make sure that you have the space to be the very best at what you do. My job is to ensure that you have enough money to do the things that you need to do so that we, you know, uh, can be, I don't know, uh, more broadly available to others. You know, so how do we do that? And what I want to know from you is what do you want to do? What does it take? And how much money do you need? And then we start to assess all of that and figure out how much of that we can do. So um, I am indebted to our staff. Uh, I say this from the very bottom of my heart. I think that we have absolutely phenomenal staff. And that's one side of it. The other side is our boards. 
as you know, I report to two boards. Uh, one is the city commission, and the other one is the is the nonprofit. And um, I think they're phenomenal. Um, they truly, truly, truly care about what we do. That's one. And two, they know, for example, the Heritage Society has been around for 50 years. They have a whole entire generational reputation to carry with them. And I think that they have given me um, the trust to be able to have you know, the elbow room that I do need to work um, to be a governing board instead of an administrative board, which is so, so important. Um, and I, now it's a joke, but at one point, you know, I, I'm very serious and said, if you want to be an administrative board, that's your decision. But then you're wasting money on me. Hire an administrator. If you want to be a governing board, then you do need a CEO. You do need a president. And that person will handle the things that are the everydays so that you can focus on where are we going to be in 20 years. And I have just such a tremendous board. I can't begin to tell you. They're so good. They're, you're all just am amazing people. And, you know, we, we, we look at having a plethora of expertise. So whether it's finance, um, I mean, we were carried through the recession and through COVID and through all of those things by some of the greatest financial experts that sat on our board your dad being one of them, by the way. Um, but we have in education, in banking, in finance, in IT, you know, you name it, in construction, um, we have that expertise at our, literally at our fingertips. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things you've done the best is assemble this amazing team around you from the actual employees at the settlement to the board is just fun. You know, you, yeah. you get to interact with such brilliant people and, and you go, wow, I'm like the uh, I'm like at the bottom rung here in the room, which is a good room to be in. You know, it's good to be uh, be surrounded by such qualified people. And so I think you have I think I think the conductor of the orchestra is the best way to put it. You've put to get you put the right people in the right places. And I think the Thank settlement you. has gone from, oh, it's a nice place to learn how to churn butter when I was growing up to now it's this place where you can tell the story of not just Naperville's history, but the Midwest, the suburbs. Mm -hmm. And I and you've brought people into that. You know, it's not just Naperville, but it's all these surrounding communities. And mm -hmm. I always hear of people coming from some of our clients who live north of here or south of here and they're, they go, oh yeah, I'm going to that Naper Nights or something like that. <laughs> and I'm like, that's fantastic. You we'll know? see you there. Yeah, and um, you know, our idea is that our job is to meet you where you are. So we wanna be representative of the community that we have um, at, at all levels, whether it's because you're an entrepreneur or because you're an immigrant or because you know, you're of a different faith or a race. Or, we want to make sure that you feel that this is your museum, because it is. It should feel like it's your museum, that you are welcome there. Um, I think for us, that is an important piece of what we do and what, we, what we're aiming for. Um, hopefully in 10 years, it will, you know, it, it, it will really have um, all of those pieces in place. Um, and the one thing that we did know is that these sort of historic villages that 
told one piece of one story um, are having a very difficult time. I think the last that I remember hearing, it's something like 73% of them are failing. And even some of the biggest ones that you would think out in the East Coast that you know tell the story of, of um, um, essentially the battles with the British and how we gained our independence, et cetera, um, have had to, for the first time, dig into their endowments. Um, and we want to make sure that we don't get to that place, that we don't have to crawl from, you know, from this um, uh, depth, but that instead, and I think the board was brilliant in the decision that it made um, nine years ago, or whatever, I guess it's more like 10, 11 years ago when they decided that they needed to do this transformation, um, and that they started working towards it again. You know, we're living the results of what they planned for all of us 10 years ago um, or 15 years ago. I, you know, I wasn't here, so I don't quite remember when all of that decision was made, but it was a while ago. It was more than a, than a decade. And so I'm just lucky and privileged that I got to be the one to do the fun part. So what else is on the calendar for everybody listening that you can come check Naper Settlement out for? We've got Alefest coming up. Yes. So we will have the August Naper Nights for us, um, and we also have um, uh, Oktoberfest, uh, Howling at the Moon, which is a 21 and over only. Doing uh, pianos? <laughs> well, hopefully. Um, you know, I don't know what, um, that I can't tell you because I'd have to check with my staff. They do that a lot better than I do, figuring okay. out the talent. Don't they? <laughs> is it like Howling at the Moon, like the place downtown, like the dueling pianos thing, or is it more you know, of like a Halloween? Uh, ho Howling at the Moon is literally, um, if you've been to All Hallows' Eve, um, it's site-wide. Okay. Uh, Halloween entertainment. But because we serve liquor, we restrict it to people that are 21 and over. So people are dressed in costume, and we have, you know, I don't know, sword swallowers and fire breathers and, you know, acrobats and a variety and music, uh, a lot of music uh, throughout the night. Uh, it's, a, it's a really good time. And then if you want to, if you, if you want a place um, for, to go with the family during the Halloween, All Hallows Eve is a good uh, alternative. We take the entire site and um, we change it to um, historical things associated with scary things, like Frankensteins, like really, you know, the story of Frankenstein, um, and so on. So books, things like that. So there is an educational component as you're going through it, but it's really, you're thinking just fun most of the time. Um, uh, and then, um, let's see, so those Oktoberfest, Howling at the Moon, um, All Hallows' Eve, and um, and certainly the Naper Nights that are coming. And then we have um, other third-party events like Festa Italiana will be in August. I think there's another Elfest. Um, and we have a whole lot of adult programming um, that is really genuinely fun, genuinely fun, and, and in much smaller groups. Um, we have walking tours of Naperville. We have walking tours of the cemetery. Um, we also have uh, broader tours of, you know, all of Naperville. So you, you get, whether it's on the trolley sometimes or sometimes on a bus, 
Um, and you learn about the architecture and the history of Naperville. At school tours. We have the school tours. We have about, you know, I'm very proud. Um, we have about 35,000 school children that come to us every year uh, from about 112 different school districts. Wow. So when you think about that, uh, you think about the great impact that we have about how we're telling the history, um, not just of our community, but of our state and, and, and our country. And, and pretty uh, soon they'll be in the STEM lab. They, yeah, well, so um, we were super lucky. Oh, I'm telling you. Um, we were so um, appreciative of the Illinois Soybean Association. Uh, we worked with them and they have provided funding for 2,500 school kids for a STEM lab to learn about agriculture. Because, you know, when we were looking at about how do we build this story about agriculture, and everybody thinks, oh, the past when we were in agrarian society, and as we were talking to all the experts, they said, no, look, agriculture is one of the main um, businesses here in the state of Illinois. It is what defines us as a state, and it's, and the problem that we're having, um, that we talked to, you know, all the major schools that said the problem that we're having is that we're losing kids to Indiana and Iowa um, because they don't understand that agriculture is connected to STEM. They want to be engineers and biologists and so on, but they don't understand the connection between that and agriculture. And so I don't remember the statistics, but it's something like 30, it was something like only 37 uh, percent is is filled of the jobs that are available that pay over 65,000 a year um, in careers that are ag driven that are STEM but that are ag driven because we don't have enough people applying that are qualified so and as we talked about it they said okay well the problem for us is that they realize this too late they realize it when they're in college or they realize it when they're in late in high school when they've already made decisions. And so we said, oh, well, what's the best age? And they said to us, you know, that middle school um, and elementary sort of, you know, your fifth grade, et cetera, fifth to eighth grade. And I said, well, I got 35,000 of those. And so we're, our hope is to build a pipeline to help people, parents, as much as the students make the connection between STEM and ag in our own state here. Um, and so having 2,500 school kids the first year um, is significant. And we're so grateful to the Illinois uh, Soybean Association for what they've done and, and the opportunity and the chance they took with us. Because, you know, of course, we haven't done it before, but I have the best staff, so we figured it out. And we did, a, think, a pretty darn good job because they have asked us to do it again next year and there will be um, space for another 2,500 kids. That's so phenomenal. in two years, we already got 5,000 kids. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. Well, that's fantastic. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for being with us for this week's episode of the show. This is Raina Calabrese, the CEO and president of Naper Settlement. Mm -hmm.